0: Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V-Radio. Good afternoon to my listeners out there in V-Radio land. If there is such a place, uh, welcome to V-Radio. If this is your first time tuning into V-Radio, please check out my website, v-radio.org. or v- There you can find more shows like this one in the archives, interviews with documentary filmmakers, activists, scientists, and some politicians, the few good ones. Um, today I also have my new co-host with me, it would be Summer Perry Some of you might remember her from the recent TZM Personalities episode I did um, Introduce yourself, Summer
1: Hi, everybody
0: Good to have you back And um, uh, finally, uh, without further ado, I'm also going to bring on uh, our documentary filmmaker today, Daniel uh, Welcome to V-Radio
2: Hey, it's great to be here, it's a pleasure, thanks for having me
0: no problem. So tell us first of all, obviously, um, a little bit about yourself, Daniel, and then I'll ask you the question I ask all my guests.
2: Well, uh, I'm a documentary filmmaker. Uh, I've lived in New York for about 15 years. Just a couple years ago, moved out to the burbs to Newark, New Jersey, to uh, invest in a up-and-coming. Neighborhood that we wanted to support. Uh, so we live. I live out here with my husband. Of uh, we've been together for 20 years, but we were married in 2010 in New Hampshire. Uh, our marriage is not recognized yet in New Jersey, but hopefully uh, the Chris Christie over or veto will be overridden soon, and we will be honored as uh, married here in New Jersey. But I've been uh, I've been making films since uh, kind of I would say 2003. Uh, and I think today we're talking about my first film for The Bible Tells Me So.
0: Yes, we are. Um, I'm actually, I'm also looking forward to eventually talking about, um, Every Three Seconds. That'll be in a future episode of V-Radio, but it's a, it looks to be like it's going to be a great documentary about poverty. Um, now Daniel, uh, you know, as I said earlier, I have kind of a tradition on V-Radio. What was your precipice moment? What was the moment for you wherein you decided to go from being someone who was part of the world to just being someone who's, you know, to also being someone who's, like, trying to make it better?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. I think uh there were a couple things that happened to me uh in my life. When I when I graduated from Duke, I went to Duke University. I went to film school at the University of Southern California, USC in LA, and um kind of didn't really love it. I worked full-time there t- in order to pay for my schooling. And I had this job at USC where I was raising money for the library system and I loved the job and kind of didn't love film school, so I put a lot of my uh, energy into the job. And w- one of the people that I met at USC in my library job was a guy named Norman Cousins, who was this amazing thinker around health. And uh, he's he made a big splash many, many years ago as the editor of the Saturday Review. But he was, uh, I think reporting on something uh, in some foreign land and came back and got a terminal diagnosis of some rare disease he had caught on an Mm -hmm. island. I may be remembering this wrong, but he had been given a terminal disease or terminal diagnosis and told he had only a few months to live. And in response, he said, well, you know, if I only have a few months, I'm going to check myself into the Biltmore, which was the finest hotel at that time in L.A., and, and take a bunch of uh, comedy videos uh, like the Three Stooges and all the classic comedy and just watch all my favorite movies in the time that I have left. Um, as outlandish as that sounds, he really did it. And in a month, he emerged from the Biltmore with no sign of the disease in his system. And he started um, dedicating his life to kind of the, um, the research of what the will has to do with Uh, living and disease and how much laughter, what laughter does to you um, physically as you laugh. So he went to UCLA, became part of their scientific community, and for another 25 years uh, researched how the will affects whether or not we live from cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, all the things that kill us. Uh, that, That sounds sort of like a weird thing to talk about, but meeting Norman Cousins was really pivotal for me because here was a guy who had kind of a usual job. I mean, he was a big deal at the Saturday Review, but he had this personal experience, and it completely altered him. I had had uh, a couple years before that I had broken my femur, which is their thigh bone. Right at the thickest point, I'd spiral broken it, um, running in a really serious way and had been told I would never walk again and i remember getting the that diagnosis just thinking okay that's what they think but that's not an option i'm going to totally walk i'll run i'll do everything i'm doing now they just don't they just don't know it i'll nod and nod my head at the diagnosis but it's not what's going to happen and sure enough it's not what ha- what happened i just had decided that I was going to overcome that, and I did. So when I read Norman's book and then met him, it was really a pivotal thing, because I thought, this guy is had, had this personal experience, and now he's sharing it with the world and probably changing a lot of people's lives. I kind of want to have a life like that. So that was experience number one. Um, and it was very empowering, but it's not really what made me an activist. What made me an activist was another... Um, Another point, a few years later, probably about nine years later, I was in New York I had started working for a television show on PBS called In the Life Which is a news magazine about gay and lesbian issues At that point, in the late 90s, it was the first uh, and the only news magazine on television Or television program at all that was talking about actual stories of gay people in their lives Kind of introducing people to kind of the normalcy of what it is to be gay uh, instead of, you know, crazy sitcom characters or, you know, the gay character on Dynasty. And The Life was about sort of medium document or miniature documentaries about um, gay people all over the country. And I, I kind of loved that, and I thought, okay, if I want to be in communications or television or film, I want to work for a show like that. So I I approached them, uh, they said that I could, um, after kind of an internship, uh, start producing. And the first thing I produced for In the Life was about um, this the, univer- the university minister at Harvard, uh, Peter Gomes, who at that point had the number one best-selling book in the country. It was called The Good Book. It's, in fact, the best-selling book ever about the Bible. And the reason that was significant for me was that there was a chapter in that book about homosexuality in the Bible that I read. For some reason, I don't remember how I got the book, but someone gave me the book, and I read the chapter. And it was amazing to read this university minister at Harvard say that homosexuality as we know it really isn't in the Bible, and that Christians who identify certain scriptures, the the famous seven clobber passages in the Bible, that they say proves that God condemns homosexuality aren't really, that's not really what they mean at all, and he he went to, in through, into this whole exegesis of those seven uh, pieces of Scripture, and I thought, well, no, why doesn't anyone – he's never on television talking about this. Whenever I see a religious person, it's always someone from the right. It's always Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson. Someone should talk about what this guy is saying, because all these people who believe in the Bible are listening to these conservatives, and there are other clergy who are saying different things. So I pitched that to In the Life they allowed me to go ahead and do not a piece on peter but a piece about his um teaching assistant a woman named Irene Monroe Reverend Irene Monroe who had this other great story she was found in a garbage can as a as an infant she had been thrown out by her mother in Brooklyn they found someone found her in a garbage can in Prospect Park Took her to the New York Foundling Hospital and was named Irene Monroe because Sister Irene, who ran the New York Foundling Hospital, loved Marilyn Monroe. And um, she grew up. She's African American. She grew up as an African American lesbian in a household without, uh, with foster parents who were functionally illiterate. Yet. She ended up at Wellesley Full Scholarship, then went to Union Theological Seminary, and now is at Harvard. So she had this amazing kind of Phoenix rising story. Uh, But what I loved about her was she was the assistant of Peter Gomes, so I could tell her story in this piece, but also interview Peter about his views of homosexuality because they were so controversial at the time. I'm telling you this whole story because what happened to me the day after that piece aired really changed my life, and it's the reason I made for the Bible, and it's the reason, really, I'm an activist. And it's this: the day after that piece aired, I went into my office at In the Life and turned on my computer and saw I had probably 60 or 70 messages from people who had seen it. Many of them were from angry religious people who were saying, you know, I was going to burn in hell for intimating that homosexuality wasn't against the, against God and the Bible. But the very first email I read, the first one, was from a young gay kid in Iowa. I think he was 13 or 14, and it was five lines. It said, last week I bought the gun, yesterday I wrote the note, Last night I happened to see your show on PBS, and just knowing that someday somewhere I might be able to go back into a church with my head held high, I dropped the gun in the river. My mom never has to know. Wow. <laughs> and I thought, I mean, I, I had to read it, like, literally, I think I read it ten t- I, I I didn't comprehend it for the first five times. I just kept reading it like, what? What about a gun? What? I'm not getting this. And then it... Really started to sink in that this kid, because of what he was hearing from his minister or rabbi or whoever it was that was telling him he was so awful, was going to kill himself. And he happened to see our show and happened to see this one clergy person say, yeah, you know what? You're not an abomination. You're not going to bring shame to your family. Uh, Forget about that. That's not what the Bible said. That made him get rid of the gun and want to live and i just thought i mean that so seared into my soul it just made me completely crazy about telling stories about people who are religious who are able to still embrace if embrace who they are um i went to after i got the email i went to the executive producer in the show of the show and just said listen we have to do way more Stories about this religious thing it's killing so many people. I mean I knew intellectually that a lot of people were driven to suicide, young and old um, who are who are LGBT because of what they were hearing in their home churches or what their parents were hearing or whatever. Um, And I knew that In The Life was never talking about that. It was a real struggle for me to convince them to let me do that first piece. But once I got that email, I kind of became their religion producer because there are just so many people of faith who do not agree with the religious right, and they have really good intellectual reasons for it. So whether you're a person of faith or not, the reality is that faith and religious people have a huge power in the lives of LGBT LGBT people in America. So that one moment, that kid and that email completely changed me. And, and honestly, I can almost never get through even saying the lines of the email without breaking down and crying. I can't believe I actually did it this time. I've been talking about it a lot because I've been kind of going around the world with for the Bible tells me so. But still, it still has the same effect on me. And it's what's, it's what made me make for the Bible Tells Me So, and it's what's what's made me make this new film, Every Three Seconds. Even though it has nothing to do, per se, with gay people or religion, uh, I now understand that we are here to take action. We are here to evolve the planet in whatever way that means for people um, to a higher place. We're here to be here for each other, so that's I, I have that young boy in Iowa to thank for that.
0: That's really an awesome story and I have to say I get emails like well, you know, nobody that I've at least I'm aware of that has not committed suicide because of me, but I do get emails about my radio show from like I got one from this guy in Mongolia of all places. I'm like, Wow, people in Mongolia have the internet, you know you know, and they're just like you just realize you're touching people's lives all over the world and you know they're like I really appreciate your work thank you so much you know and it definitely means something and you know it's definitely one of the great things about the internet also just about documentary distribution because like before the internet you wouldn't even have heard of a documentary unless like one of the networks decided it was worth putting on and um, it's definitely done wonders for you guys, you know, as documentary filmmakers. I'm actually working on one right now myself, although it's going to be pretty much all internet-based, but um, it's about the topic of internet trolling. Um, we can talk about that at another time, but um, just the basically the destruction of the online conversations, uh, you know, brought on by that. But um, in any case, uh, first of all, um, I want to say, you know, that, that story was very compelling in I'm glad that you did the work that you did. I actually, you know, uh, watched the film again last night to be sure I was ready, and I asked my co-host to do the same. Uh, Summer, do you want to give your thoughts on the film?
1: Um, Yes, I just want to say I really enjoyed it, and learned a lot, and was really inspired, and I think that overall the film is very positive, despite some of the heartbreaking stories that are in it. I think overall it's very inspiring and positive, and I think I appreciated it, and I'm sure a lot of people that see this will, will feel the same way. Thank you.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think especially now, one of the things that we discussed off the air, obviously a little bit in email, was I, you know, because of the fact there's so many Christian gay people in the film, I felt that compelled to ask. I'm like, oh man, you know, I'm I'm usually kind of an atheist radio host. I don't want to offend this guy. You know, you know, what is his faith? You know. Uh, and you told me, you know, an interesting story about what, you know your approach, and uh, that one of the people who donated to the film was an atheist. Do you want to relate that story to the audience?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, when you make when you make documentaries, independent documentaries, obviously part of what you have to do is raise money. And uh, for the Bible, it costs a little under a million dollars to make. So I had a lot of fundraising to do, and we had a team of people who did it. Um, but one of my big prospects was a uh, pretty prominent television person who uh, is a very vocal skeptic and atheist uh, and uh was we, we, we all we always had really great conversations about it He sent me i uh, he was the first person who introduced me to Sam Harris and the end of Faith and just a bunch of really great books about that, because I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by the power of this thing we call religion in our society. So he and I always had these great conversations, and then I decided to make this film, and I went, I went to see him in L.A. and just said, you know, um, I need you to, to give me some money to make a donation. Everybody who gives money to the film gets a full tax deduction, and I know you want to support my work, and uh, so this is what the movie's about. It's called For the Bible Tells Me So, and it's about the intersection of religion and homosexuality I'm going to tell the stories of five really religious Christian families who find out they have a gay kid and uh, kinda watch what happens and at the same time I'm gonna open up the Bible and take it really seriously because the people who are most responsible for voting against marriage equality or equal rights at all for gay people are the are uh, tend to be the people kind of in the red states who are very much who very much hold to their Bible and instead of sort of trying to undo the Bible or denigrate the Bible, which will just get them to turn off, I'm going to open it up and I'm going to mm-hmm. introduce all these amazing clergy, including Desmond Tutu and you know, this great guy from Pepperdine, which is you know, generally a pretty conservative Christian college, um, and I'm going to have them talk about what these seven pieces of scripture actually mean, when they were, what the context and culture of the time was when they were written. I because I want to give people the tools to have this debate. What happens is conservative Christians start spewing scripture, and all of us who don't know the Bible very well just shut down and go, okay, well, they must know better than us. Well, they don't, and let's get some amazing clergy to kind of school people on how to have that conversation. So I had this conversation with, I'll call him, change his name, I'll call him Greg. Um, And Greg said, well, That sounds great, Dan, but there's no way I'm ever going to give you money for a film that takes the Bible seriously or has Bible in the title. (laughs) That's crazy. I'm an atheist. Why would I do that? And I said, David, because you're too smart. You're much smarter than that. This is not a movie about promoting the Bible. It's not a movie about promoting Christianity. It's a movie about looking at this issue and the role the Bible plays in it. And to start undoing this tool of oppression that we've kind of handed to the right. And we had this, I mean, it wasn't a one time conversation. He would say, OK, well, let me think about it a little more. And I'd send him various write ups about the movie and update him. And then I showed him kind of a first trailer. And he looked at me and said, OK, I'll give you like $10,000. It's like, great, that's a lot of money, that's fantastic. And then it got a little farther along, and he gave me a little bit more money, but he was always really skeptical about it. He kept saying, I think I'm going to regret that I can't believe I'm giving you money for this religious film. This is crazy. And then uh, the film got into Sundance, which was this huge thing for any first-time filmmaker, and it was this brilliant, amazing thing. And Sundance is all about press, right? So I'm at Sundance. I'm on Main Street in Park City, kind of halfway through, going from interview to interview to interview. The movie is kind of all over, everywhere. CNN, really everywhere. And and Greg, um, <laughs> I almost said his name. Greg calls me. This atheist calls me in tears. And this is not like an emotional guy. This is like a mm-hmm. guy's guy. He was crying. He had just seen a a, a story about the film on CNN. And it was like, oh, my God, Dan, this is exactly what you said you were doing. It's getting, it's going to be huge. People are going to see this movie, and it's not at all what I feared. This is exactly what we wanted. I'm so proud. This is this may be the best thing I ever invested in. So, you know, it's it, it doesn't matter where you come from. As I said to uh, Neil in the email, I get asked almost in every Q&A, you know, well, what's your faith tradition? Are you a Christian? People kind of are people want to know that almost more than anything else. And my, my answer is always, it doesn't really matter what I think. What matters is there's this thing that um, is causing a lot of people to take their lives and feel really badly about themselves, which if you're a person who looks at the, uh, the life of Jesus, no matter who you think he was, whether you think he was the son of God or just some rabbi or just a myth, what supposedly he talked about was anything but that so that's my whole point it doesn't matter where i'm coming from it's that's not what the movie's about the movie isn't pro anything it's it's against oppression
0: that's awesome, and actually I, I totally understand your point about not really going out of your way, because, I mean, yeah, you could make an atheist film about the situation, but that doesn't help the people that have been raised to be Christian all their lives, who are essentially kind of being you know, bullied and psychologically terrorized with the idea that they're going to go to hell. You know, It doesn't give any reconciliation, and it doesn't really put a face on the issue with anybody that they know. You know that that's it doesn't give them anything to relate to, and I think that the stories that you you picked with the families were very powerful, and I think that was an excellent approach to the situation. Um, you know, and I think it's also great that you know your atheist uh, benefactor was able to see the value of your approach, uh, because largely it's about kind of especially when you're trying to help these people, it's about taking the the power away from the from the people that are essentially being psychological terrorists. It's about you know taking the the essentially the energy out of their bullying. And that I think, you know, you, you definitely achieved, you know, with this film, you know, and it's funny that you brought up red state or said red state, you know, referring to the red states because that immediately made me think of the Kevin Smith film I watched not long ago. And, um, I watched a doc, uh, basically a, uh, interview with him after the fact that he did. And, um, he was talking about a, a friend of his who's a gay filmmaker, who had to, I guess he made a film called Small Town Gay Bar, I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but, you know, he was talking about his experiences, like, because this, if you can imagine it, this gay man, who's a filmmaker, goes and interviews uh, the people from Westboro Baptist Church, you know, those, those, yeah, it was like, (laughs) you, you got some courage, you know, and, um, but anyway, I, I won't relate like how the guy went through it because it's a little vulgar. I mean, this is a Kevin Smith situation. I mean, But it was very funny the way that the gay man uh, kept his cool through the whole thing was he just kind of focused on something that was really humorous, but I'm not going to bring it up on the air. Um, but anyway... I should look
2: for that. I should look yeah. for that because I, I spent a lot of time interviewing them as well. I decided not. I mean, the Fred Phelps people are in the film just really briefly because right. what I, cause I kept seeing them. And what I ca- what I came to about that whole situation is that until we stop, and ironically, we're talking about this on the radio, but I really feel su- super strong about this. Until we stop talking about them, until we stop letting them make us mad and doing counter, you know, doing counter um, um, demonstrations, and all, we have to just have a media blackout on them, and they will shrivel up and crawl back into the hole which they came from. Agreed. They are complete media whores, and that is why they do what they do. So them, you know, us getting mad at them or countering them or doing anything that gives the news media a reason to cover them feeds into their insanity. So I get called all the time by from people who say, "Will you come on, you know, whatever television show and, you know, debate someone from Westboro Baptist Church. And I absolutely will not do it, not because I couldn't win the argument, because I really think I could. I have many times in the field. It's because we have got to stop giving them the energy that keeps them going. That's how they find their donors when they get into the media. That's how they find other supporters. We have to just stop reacting to them because they really, they're just, they're, as I said, total media whores.
0: That's actually, you know, you're very right about that, and it's one of the reasons, even in my troll film, like, people are asking me, like, are you going to feature any of the trolls that you know? Because when I said that I was making a film about them, they made entire blogs dedicated to doing nothing but attacking me, and I'm like, nope, they're not even going to get a mention, not by name anyway. I might refer to their deeds, but I'm certainly not going to tell anybody who they are. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm not going to get them more hits to their website. I'm not going to you know do any of that because I'm talking about the behavior. You know, I'm talking about that's what needed to be brought about as far as awareness. It's kind of a different attitude with that, but I totally understand. I mean, they would just be some sort of obscure church of weird people if they didn't start doing ridiculous things like showing up at you know the military funerals and all that. You know, they would just be some obscure little church of crazy people out you know somewhere in the Bible Belt. You know, if it weren't for the fact that, you know, they were scandalous and we're getting all kinds of attention. And I thought about that, too, because Kevin Smith ended up inviting them to the showing of one of his films because they were protesting it all the time. And, um, you know, I realized that by him talking to them, obviously, it brought more attention to, you know, to their quote unquote plight. Um, you know, and although yes, you will achieve some. You know, certainly you will achieve something by you know humiliating quote unquote their their ridiculous behavior. You're also going to kind of you know tell their supporters where to find them. You know, it's a very good point. Um, yeah. So it, I guess that that would be why you know I, I was curious about that because I was like you know I wonder if he inv- interviewed any of those people and the, you know and they are in there just a little bit and now. I understand the strategy. It's a very sound strategy. Um yeah,
2: I had I saw them maybe 5 different times at 5 different things had tons of footage of them but I just I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't help them so I just left them out mostly No
0: no that that sounds totally straight up now I got to say um there is one thing that I've noticed uh my own problem in being a gay rights activist who's 100% straight is you know they're already always asking you about your faith they're always asking me about my sexuality because clear clearly yep. anybody who cares about gay rights must be gay right. you know <laughs> they they always ask you are you gay I'm like no i'm not you know but i grew up in a household where if i had ever turned to my mother and said hey mom i'm gay she'd be like okay you know <laughs> she wouldn't have cared at all you know and yeah. she, she raised me very much to be about that being a freedom issue and i think that's one of the reasons why it compels me so much is i can hear my mom's voice in my head telling these people to shut the hell up when they're you know going after someone for their personal choices what two consensual people do you know in the privacy of their their lives is none of your damn business you know that was actually the uh one of the more important catalysts that got me out of the Ron Paul movement although it's not Ron Paul's fault um at one point in the 2008 election, he uh, basically was deciding. Okay, well, I'm not going to get the nomination, and I'm not going to run third party. Here are a couple of other guys that I, you know, I, I like a bit. So, you know, here, let's check them out. And like one of them was from the Constitution Party. I don't know if you're familiar with that party, but um, basically, they they try to kind of be a libertarian party, but they're also heavily Christian right. It's like you know, imagine a libertarian party for the Christian conservatives who are too you know, fringe to be in the Republican Party. And that's what the Constitution wow. Party is. And so me, of course, one of my mentors was Senator Mike Gravel. He was the guy that read the Pentagon Papers into the public record as a senator way back in the Vietnam era. And he's like, you know, don't let anybody convince you to vote for a candidate until you've done some research. And then I go research this this party, and it comes to find out they just have this platform that is totally based around making it legal to bash gay people You know, not doing, you know, like it says specifically in their platform for the entire party that, you know, we should not do anything to encourage homosexual behavior and that we should not do anything to discourage people who are discouraging homosexual behavior. I mean, it was just flat out theocratic fascism. And I got in a lot of trouble with my previous independent network for exposing that, you know. And then I was like, look, this isn't some super secret thing. This is on their website, right, in their platform, you know. So even in the freedom movement, you know, I've run into Flack because there were people who, well, we need a good candidate and he's the next best thing and I'm like, well, I'm sorry, I'm not going to vote for a guy that you know, endorses this platform. And um they made the mistake of inviting me on to debate him once. And uh it didn't go very well because I opened up with, "So do you endorse the Constitution Party's platform?" And of course, he was like, "Oh yeah, of course I do." And then I was like, "Oh, okay." So, and then I started reading it <laughs> on the air and uh it didn't take long before they hung up on me. But, um, you know, it's it's amazing to me, uh, though, it's just that I must be gay. You know, it can't be possible that I'm just a straight individual who thinks that, you know, these people have a right to do whatever they want, you know, and I think it's also been, you know, it's been an interesting journey for me. I have a friend of mine, for example, you know, who's definitely, you who's know, very bisexual, and, he didn't tell any of us in our circle of friends because he was worried that we were going to react negatively. And when he finally got around to it, we just kind of went, well, yeah, Jim, I think we knew before you did. <laughs> because, you know, he, you know, he very much, it was pretty obvious, you know. And, um, you know, and ever since then now, I mean, there's, there's just this energy of tolerance where I'm, where I'm at, and um, it's been awesome. Now, Summer, do you have any experiences with discussing this issue with other activists?
1: I have, um, I think, you know, my uncle growing up, I had a gay uncle, so I was exposed to, I grew up in the South, um, in the Baptist church, so I understand how difficult that can be. But I also grew up with my uncle and I adored my uncle, so it was never an issue for me to not accept him or anyone else who was gay. Um, and I, my experience with most activists that I encounter or that they feel that, Whenever you single out any particular section of the human race, it's completely ignorant because we're all in this together. There are no gay problems. There are no black problems. There are no white problems. If one group of us is having a problem, it's a problem for everyone. So I think a lot of activists take the gay marriage issue and the gay rights issues on personally as well.
0: Yeah, that's definitely something I'd say. You know, that I found very refreshing about some of the activist groups that we hang out with. Obviously, the Zeitgeist movement and, and the Occupy movement. For me, you know, it was the one place I could go where it, we were all activists, but it, we were activists in such a beautiful way because the idea that someone was black or Hispanic or gay or you know transgender, it, it didn't even get brought up. Like you'd be exactly. sitting, you'd be sitting at a a meeting or whatever where you're discussing major things and you were conscious of it but it wasn't relevant to the conversation which to me actually like to some people that would be like an insensitivity to the issue but to me it was so beautiful because you know there's a transgender guy sitting right next to me and we're having this great conversation and the fact that he's transgender did not define his position in the conversation at all he was free to just be himself who you know an activist who happens to be transgender you know what do you think about that daniel
2: well i think you know we have so many human the human race creates so many barriers and so many ways to to separate where the the irony is that really the only thing that's important is that we are all human we are what happens to i mean that's that's kind of the film i'm working on right now you know we we the idea that um Color should separate us, or sexual orientation, or nationality, or anything is kind of crazy when you really look at it in, uh, you know, sort of umbrella kind of sense. I what I loved, I have to agree with the the Occupy movement. When I finally made it down to kind of uh, experience the Occupy movement about a month after it ha- was happening in New York, I was completely blown away by this idea that here was this block of New York that was populated by every different kind of person you would ever see. At every different economic level. And I'm just I it reminded me of um the only time I've ever experienced that in the US before was the on the mall the day that Barack Obama was um uh what's it called and the president <laughs> takes oath. Um uh-huh
0: the presidential inauguration
2: inauguration thank you (laughs) couldn't think of that word that day too what their people it nothing mattered everyone was happy and getting along and hugging and i mean it was just this unbelievably beautiful wonderful experience and that's what the occupy movement was, too, that when when you are really looking at the big issues as an activist, all these other reasons why we shouldn't get along or don't get along completely go away. None of it matters. We are, you know, we really are one. Unity is where we need to be headed. and, And, you know, when you're working for change in an active, positive way, I think that becomes really clear.
0: That's you know, excellent and you know, you're definitely right, and I think that it doesn't mean for example that like the people within that activist group are not sensitive to the specific issues you might be facing. I mean like if someone right. showed up and started harassing you, you know, at least at in, in Occupy Detroit, and I'm pretty sure this is true of most occupies, that guy would be shown the door. You know, totally. and it'd be like, Yeah, get your bigoted self out of here. We don't tolerate that at all in here you know, and that's Basically, um, you, know, you know, so they would be on your side completely, but there was definitely a sense that, you know, we're all in this together and our divisions are irrelevant, you know, um, other than to say that obviously we're going to stand together, you know, so that I think actually is an interesting point that, you know, some people make. It's like, you know, is the problem specifically you know bigotry against gays or is it just bigotry in general is bad across the board you know is it against you know blacks is it against you know just bigotry is terrible in every form and don't get me wrong i think that doing what you did for example in exposing the specific details about that bigotry is obviously a worthy task because especially for your situation you know um the gay world is difficult to understand to someone who has no idea what's going on outside of it. You know, it's a different world for them, the way they perceive the world, the way the world treats them, you know. So for the same reason, obviously, that the Civil Rights Movement kind of brought an expose onto what it was like to be black in America or Hispanic in America. You know, you're definitely, it's definitely there. I think that I, one of the reasons I think, you know, um, I would bring that up for, you know, a similar reason the Summer does is that the one thing I've noticed that activists sometimes make the mistake of um, unlike in the Occupy movement, is like they'll have one hot-button issue, and that'll be the most important thing to them ever, ever, ever. And then as a result, they can't work with anyone else, you know, who maybe that issue it might be important to them, but not quite as important. Did you follow me?
2: Right. Oh, totally. I think that's been a huge challenge with the gay rights movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I You know, I completely think that the next sort of movement forward in – rights for LGBT folks is not going to become because gay people are demanding it and they're very sort of focused and steady and only are kind of fighting for that one thing. It's going to happen when gay people start fighting for the rights of everyone so that everyone, including blacks, Hispanics, immigrants, all the other people that are othered in our society, um, we have got to break out of just being so, you know, so much about ourselves that, when we're being perceived as fighting for everybody's civil rights, fighting for everyone's basic equality, then everyone will come and be in our camp too. And the other thing is, people like you, Neil, who are straight allies. I mean, it, I think it is incredible, much more powerful for people who are who identify as straight themselves to meet other straight people who are um, who are not anti-gay, who are are people who understand that we're just all humans because they. That's why For the Bible Tells Me So is not about four gay, five gay kids. It's about their straight parents, really. It's a movie about the parents and the kids mm-hmm. are there. But it's really about straight people need to see other straight people okay. Uh, and I'm, I'm just huge. It's, it's, again, one of the reasons I'm making my new film is I didn't want to make another film about gay rights at this point because I've done that. And we need to think larger. All of us who are activists need to fight for everybody. Then everything happens. You know, so I completely agree with you. And I think that's why you always get that question, because people are used to pretty much only gay people fighting for their own rights. Yes. If they're not used to straight people. Straight, you're, wait, you're straight and you're fighting for what? What is that about? It's because it's partially the gay community's fault because we've been so insular. That's definitely changing. Absolutely. I just read today mm-hmm. that a couple big gay groups are going to be marching with the N, uh, NAACP, uh, either today or tomorrow, um which is great that's what we we have to realize that this is all about all of us you know in for the Bible, which you guys just w- watched, I talk about there is a section kind of two thirds of the way in wa- about how humans have this need to make an other. No matter who it was, it was, you know, it was women, and then it was blacks, and now it's gays, and next it's immigrants. You know, we just have this need, and what we have to do as activists is, is resist that in every way possible for everyone, not just for the, what we identify
0: no, absolutely. And I think that um, you know, the concentration on the issue being bigotry for example, definitely allows you to network and work together towards the common goal of eliminating all bigotry. You know, because that's another um unfortunate like pitfall that I've seen people fall into. Um, for example, I've known lesbians who are so over feminist that they become man-haters. You know, like they take it so far that they have bigotries of their own. And, you know, and it's like, that's not how you solve this. You know, you can't fix this by hating more people and being bigotry, you know, bigoted or sexist because some of the terms they say will be very sexist, like, you know, men do this or men do that. I'm like, how is that any better than, you know, men saying stuff about women? It's not, you know. Um, The same thing is true, like, you know, I have a friend actually, you know, who is a black fellow and, you know, he's a... An activist, and like I remember having a conversation with him once where I was like, Well, what do you think about it when a group of black kids, you know, beat up a white kid? Because I happen to grow up in an area that, for whatever reason, has a lot of black on white racism. I think some of it is that uh, there are there are some of those Farrakhan style Muslims there, the ones that think they're basically black supremacists. And he's like, Oh, well, that's not racism. And I'm like, Wait a minute, how's that not racism? You know, I was targeted specifically because I was white and no other reason. You know, he's like, well, you got to understand, you know, we've been oppressed for so long, and I'm just like, okay, but it's still racist if you attack someone for being white as much as it would be for being black. You know, it's like they get angry, and I understand, you know, that that there's definitely a need to express your anger, especially when you've been oppressed, but when you allow it to essentially make you into what it is that you're fighting, it's very counterproductive, you know. Um, Do you have anything to add to that, Summer?
1: Oh, yes, I was just thinking... That's why I think it's so important to push not so much fighting the problems that we see, but pushing the solutions, educating mm-hmm. people about tolerance specifically, not just focusing on well, look at all the horrible things that are that are happening to these people, pushing the the tolerance and your film does that. Your film shows a lot of examples of how people were able to adjust their beliefs after becoming educated about what it actually means to be homosexual. And the tolerance is what is going to affect people the most on an emotional level and be most inspiring. Yeah,
0: I think that's definitely, you know, speaks to the strategic point that we were making about how, you know, making an anti-Christian film would not have helped, you know, but whereas making a, you know, pro, you know, essentially gays and Christians interacting did help, you know, yeah. did create bridges you know, because in many cases, like you pointed out, these families were grieving. You know, they didn't want to feel the way they did about their, you know, about their children. You know, yeah. but they're being told by their religious leaders that that's what they're supposed to hate them and cast them out. And they don't want to do that either. And, you know, there are so many good stories in your film about parents who found an alternative, a different way of looking at it, that they can reconcile within themselves and have their children back. You know, that's and that was so powerful. And I think, you know, that would be exactly how I would justify it to other people, too, is that it does not help you essentially to to further the gap. You know, and I think that's what would have happened if you had made, you know, essentially an anti-Christian pro-gay film, you know, is that it would have just created, okay, well, now I'm angry, which is better than being (laughs) self-loathing, But, you know, and I think that's actually what it ends up being. It's a manifestation of, I don't want to be self-loathing, so therefore I'll hate you instead, you know. um totally. which And is you a- don't
1: want to create even more enemies. Sure. In, in the religious sector.
0: Yeah, you don't need people. Yeah, I mean. Go ahead. Yeah, I
2: I, I was worried. I mean, I, I wasn't making this. I did not have the gay community in mind when I made the film. I literally would say to my editor once a week at least, okay, this is about straight people in the red states, straight people in the red states. This is not for the gay community. It is for those Christians who use the Bible to bash gay people. I want to change their minds. I don't want it. This isn't to make gay people feel better. This isn't, you know, if that happens, great. But my clear purpose the whole time I made the film was to change hearts and minds not to sort of placate in fact when when the film started at Sundance and then did Berlin and did a a bunch of really great festivals but um, our distributor or my film sales agent I should say was keeping it out of gay film festivals initially because they really wanted Sort of mainstream distributor to pick it up as a mainstream film, not kind of label it as an LGBT film. Right. Um, So we weren't in any gay film festivals until like six months later. The first um, gay film festival we did was OutFest, which is the Los Angeles um, Gay and Lesbian Film Festival, and that's a really huge deal. And they were making it their spotlight doc, and it was really you know this huge honor. But I was terrified because I really thought that. When the gay community finally saw this film, they would want to hang me because it's not what we're, it's not this anti Christian, anti religion film because so many gay people have been so injured by the church that their response, as you just said, Neil, is complete rejection. Like, if you're going to reject me, I reject you even more strongly. And so there's a lot of anger and and unhappiness. And I thought at that first screening, people were either going to walk out or just, you know, turn to me and want to tear me limb from limb. Happily, the film won the audience award, which means the audio, it was the favorite film of the the festival for audiences, but I really didn't think that was going to happen because because of what you said, the history of this incredibly dark oppression makes people oppress back.
0: Yeah, and it's definitely counterproductive because it just kind of further's the battle. You know, um, and it's just like I just had a conversation with somebody about this recently because it's the same thing with, you know, the Internet trolling studying I'm doing is people will get caught up in it. And then it becomes the the way that you make war on the Internet is by attacking each other personally. And then there's no there's no way that the two can reconcile and actually converse with one another about their views and make progress. You know, you get caught up in your in your grudges and then you're incapable at that point of communicating with each other and actually achieving anything outside of you know setting up your bunkers and your prospective sides of the battle you know and and not actually moving forward and I think that uh you know i I mean now that after the fact, you know what was the reaction from the gay community did it did it come out positive?
2: I was hugely positive um you know we it won. At Outfest, it won the Best Documentary Audience Award at almost every LGBT festival after that. It won the Audience Award, um, which means out of all the films in the festival, it was the favorite film. It's been used hugely by the gay community um, in so many different ways. I mean, it's, it's just been completely embraced, which is a huge, amazing, great, surprising thing. But even more surprising, and and really why I made it, it's now it's now been screened in um, probably about 4,500 churches across the country, which is huge. Wow! I never thought that would happen. I wow. hoped that would happen, but I just thought, yeah, no. But what I found was, you know, churches—not all churches, but many, many, many um, churches—are really conflicted about this. The more people come out and the more that people in the pews start to get to know gay people, the more they are questioning this, like, complete um, uh, thought that the church puts out there, the conservative church puts out there, that gay people are condemned, period. You start to get to know someone and are like, hmm, well, this guy doesn't seem evil. He's not after my children. He's just my neighbor or my brother or my father or my son. And... More and more churches are having these conversations. We were we were approached by a huge United Methodist Church in Dallas, Texas, who wow. saw the film and said, "We want to invest fifty thousand dollars in a Bible study based on this film, a six-week Bible study." So there's this amazing Bible study now based on the film, where they each week is about a different one of the five families, and then this last the last week is just a kind of a wrap-up, and it's written by six different evangelical. Ministers who used the Bible study to come out themselves, not as gay but as not anti-gay right. Wonderful. I don't know if that makes sense that is so really it's just epic. been I mean the amount that this film it's it's been completely and totally stunning how far and wide it's gone. We had a great theatrical run. we were in about one hundred and forty cities um, and then once it came out on DVD, it just exploded. Um, in fact, I think the end of 2010, um, there's a pretty prominent um, entertainment magazine called Entertainment Weekly. Mm-hmm. They, they did an article about five movies that have changed the world, and For the Bible was number four. So, Wow. wow. <laughs> That's really <spiritually> shocking. <wonderful>. <laughs> like of all movies, all docs. <laughs> We were number four? I don't know. You know, I think it was completely non-scientific and probably based on a couple people's opinions. But still, it was cool. You know, the documentarian, that that was pretty thrilling to see. Because that's why you, you know, that's why I do what I do. It's to make change and to make things better. Um, And for the Bible has really uh, just been... It's been stunning how far and wide it's gotten out. It's in all these different languages. Um, there are there are bootleg copies all over China. I mean, it's just
0: amazing. That's <laughs> there's bootleg copies all over China. <laughs> and that's bring amazing. it on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you get to the point that your work, you don't care that people are stealing it. <laughs> oh,
2: I've never cared. I can't tell my distributor that, but you know, whatever. I just wanted to change hearts and minds. It's not about. It. If I wanted to make money, I wouldn't be a documentary filmmaker. One of
1: the things I appreciated the most was how educational it was, um, especially, <laughs> interestingly enough, the animated short, I felt was one of the most educational I loved
0: that part. in the film
1: <laughs> with the science that you presented about um, the in utero studies that had been done on how the mother's antibodies affect fetuses. I thought that was incredible. Um, yeah. Also, the other yeah, psychological studies that were done, that was so helpful and so useful.
0: Yeah, that was yeah, definitely I mean, great. That was one of my favorite parts of the film, honestly. Sorry, go ahead.
2: Interesting. You know, well, as we were, you know, as we were making, as we were cutting it, I knew there was all this science that I'd read about and I didn't quite know how to put it in the film. And, you know, if you've ever tried to interview most scientists, they're, you know, they're not necessarily charismatic on camera, let's just say that. Right. And, you know, you've seen the film. The film is a, has has enough talking heads in it already, so I thought, well, maybe I can do something around animation that'll tell... Because I, I thought it was fascinating, this whole idea that, you know, you constantly hear, is being gay genetic, is it in your genes? But the real question is, what about hormones? I mean, sexuality mm-hmm. is so governed by hormones, uh-huh. it makes so much more sense to me that this these hormone studies are happening, and they are really discovering some interesting stuff. So that's, that's kind of why we made it. The, the, um, it was an interesting process because, you know, I've never made a cartoon before. I didn't – I found a I, – I saw a cartoon online. I really liked how it looked. So I called the company. It was in Austin, Texas, and just said, listen, I'm making this film. I'm having this playwright I know that I know write a script. If I send you the script, can you look at it? Give me a bid. How much it might cost? and i just want to make a cartoon out of it and they said well okay um once they got the script they called me and said well what you what do you want this to look like and i said i don't i'm I don't know a cartoon what what does that mean <laughs> like, well, do you want it to be you know stick figures do you want it to be like look like toy story 3d cg what do you want it to look like And I was like i don't know um mm-hmm. I want it to look like it could have been used, like, in a health class in the 60s.
0: <laughs> I want it
2: to look like, and they were like, okay, keep talking. I said, I want it to look like the beginning of the classic version of Bewitched, which mm-hmm. was a cartoon, you know, where, like, mm-hmm. Samantha's, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Oh yes, yeah. Oh, yes. You know, Samantha's in the kitchen, and it's this cartoon, and they went, okay, we know exactly what that means. So they started sending me, like, thousands of drawings of all these different, like, here are 15 different Christians. Which one do you like? I "I don't (laughs) know that one. You know, it's, like, so random. Um, but But the coolest thing about it, and I don't know if you noticed it, maybe if you go back and look at it, the greatest thing about the cartoon, and I think one of the reasons that it is so effective and affecting, is the guy that does the voiceover is a guy named Don LaFontaine, who has since passed away, but he was a really great, wonderful friend of mine who was the voice of every movie trailer ever until yeah. about three years ago when he died. Mm-hmm. He, he was the voice of NBC. He was this voice that we were all used to hearing. And so I called him and just said, Don, you know, I'm making this film. I don't have any money. He just said yes. So I haven't even asked you what I want. He goes, it doesn't matter, Dan. Yes, what, I, I'll do whatever you want. I said, "Well, I have this script. Can you go into your home studio and just record it?" And he did it in like 2 minutes, sent it to the animation company and they had it. But I think you can't you cannot um stress enough or um appreciate enough the importance that you're hearing this guy's voice who makes you comfortable. You know this guy, you mm-hmm. know his voice. If he's saying it, it has a little more weight. I don't know. It's it was just a huge thing for me that Don did it. I and, see no I
0: know um, what you mean because um actually Dan Rather is doing that right now. Like he does things that are actually activist oriented because he knows people are used to hearing news with his voice. So right. I'm sorry to interrupt. Right. It's yeah, really go ahead. important. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: no. And and honestly, when the when the cartoon was done, neither my editor nor I were really sure it was gonna work in the film because it's such a it's such a kind of right turn.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, you're
2: meeting these families and you're starting to get into conflict and then there's a cartoon. Mm-hmm. You know. So that was really we had a bunch of we went back and forth about putting it in and then um I started testing a rough cut of the film. I had a friend who was at General Theological Seminary in New York, which is kind of -of middle-of-the-road seminary, but I asked him to find the most conservative students he could. So he picked these three husband-and-wife teams who were all studying at the the seminary who were very, very conservative from the South, from a Baptist tradition. I asked him to just put them in a room, and I wanted to show them the movie just to sort of start hearing what they had to say. And I want those were the people I was targeting for the movie. Right. Yeah. So the fir- this was the first test rate screening. I was on my way over to General to show the film. And I told Nancy, you know, let's just drop the cartoon in. You know, I'm not sure it's even though we paid a lot of money for it. I'm not sure it's going to make it in. But let's see how people react to it. So we dropped it in the film, I took the DVD over, I sat at the back of the room as these six people watched the movie, and the, when I turned on the lights afterwards, they all turned around and I said, so, okay, I want to hear feedback. And the very first thing that was said was, well, I just love that cartoon.
0: <laughs> and I said,
2: you did? They were like, oh, yes. I mean, we, you know, if there's an article in a newspaper or something about the science of homosexuality, I would never even read it because I don't believe it. But there was something about that cartoon that made me think, oh, wow, there are all those gay animals? Wow, that makes <laughs> kind of some sense about when a woman's pregnant and her fetus, her male fetus being seen as a foreign aunt. Op- I mean, and they could, they were like, they'd remembered the entire cartoon. Wow, and it was their favorite thing. part of the movie. And I thought, okay, it's in because... These are the people I most care about. I knew I knew that critics, honestly, I knew that critics would hate it. And if you read, um, if you read our reviews, like on Rotten Tomatoes, which have been brilliant, um, I mean the, the, the reviews are just like so generous. But if there was ever one thing in the film that a reviewer didn't like, it was the animation.
1: Yeah, well, Almost I normally always. I normally hate that because I'm a, a, I'm a documentary watcher, but I have to remember that too, that people who don't watch documentaries really appreciate things like that.
0: Right. That's awesome. Well, I think, um, you know, one of the things about using the cartoon in this medium, it's just like the, uh, I mean, you find the same thing in newspapers with, like, brief little, like, cartoons that are political. Uh, There's a reason why, in many cases, people who are kind of trying to be political activists in some fashion or another will use humor Mm -hmm. Um, is because it disarms the audience, you know, there's, you know, like they may not turn to the political page in your newspaper, but if they see a little cartoon, they'll read it because they're expecting to laugh, you know, and especially when you make fun of something that's silly, you know, like a silly idea, like about the budget or whatever, you know, when you actually put it in that, in that context so the people recognize how silly it is, you know, like George Carlin did this constantly you know, because he would make comments all the time about, you know, uh, uh, society and the weird things that we did, Um, you know, it puts it in a context that I think, you know, makes people comfortable, and I think part of that could also just be because of the fact we're exposed to cartoons at a very young age, you know, um, and that they're kind of the, they were the learning format for many people growing up. I think puppets almost have the same effect, so, um, you you know, but... I think uh, in addition to that, you know, when I talk about the science, you know, I I got in an argument recently with somebody on YouTube because there's this video that's being circulated on YouTube of this young kid who is, I guess, doing a radio program. And, you know, in the the video is called that, you know, President Obama and Joe Biden are making kids gay. And I looked at it and I'm like, you know, I'm a 100 percent straight male and I'm a gay rights activist. I should be infuriated by this video but as this kid is talking, I just can't stop laughing. You know, it's just like, oh, my God, really? Did you just, you know, and it just it was so bad. And then anyway, so in the comment section, there's this lady who's obviously going off on all the people that are obviously also think that this video is really silly. You know, the kid is taking it totally seriously. And I was like, look, you know, I, you know, she's like, well, you know, if you say you're you're straight, it's because you're you know you're secretly gay and all that. That's one of the reasons that came to mind is, you know, every gay rights activists must be gay you know and i said i was like look this is why i know it's not a choice okay i cannot turn and look at a guy and choose to be physically attracted to him i can't choose what i'm attracted to at all i I don't choose what i'm attracted to in women for example i am a am weird this way i don't care about breasts breasts have never been important to me for whatever reason that they just aren't you know Legs and um hips on the raw side, but hair and eyes and you know um th- those are all things that attract me i didn 't choose that that 's been biochemically true about me since I was a kid you know yeah. and it 's the same thing. I could not just choose to be attracted to men at all you know it 's not within my capacity you know and it doesn 't bother me that other people are obviously, but you know at the same token you can 't choose your body chemistry there's something about that you know i 'm sure that it 's a kind of a combining factor of nature nature and nurture because there are some traits for example about my mother that I find attractive in other girls like I like strong girls and I like intelligent girls and you know stuff like that and my mother was both of those things but physically she does you know the girls that I'm attracted to don't look anything like my mother so you know if there's definitely something else going on there you know and I just I look at people who suggest that this is a behavior and I just it's like they're not being honest with themselves about their own sexuality. I think that's one of the biggest problems here is that these people can't even talk about what they're attracted to and why. I mean, that's why Kinsey, you know, did that study. It was to try to put some, shed some light on the truth of the situation, you know, that, you know, people don't really talk about these things. They don't communicate about these things and they don't come to peace about these things. And that's why they can't understand what anyone else would feel. You know, never mind the fact that You often suspect, obviously, that you have a lot of, you know, what they would call, you know, people that are homophobic because they are gay and can't reconcile it, so they just start lashing out at it, you know, just like you have in everybody else's, like, flaws. It's not just that. Like, I've seen people who hate, you know, claim to, you know, hate racists and then are racist. I've seen, Mm -hmm. you know, people that, you know, it's just, it's, it's a projection thing, you know, and that's, I think, you know, it's like, aside from any obvious science you can experience it with your five senses you know there is no amount of joe biden or barack obama making gay marriage legal that would suddenly make me attracted to men there just isn't you know <laughs> and the entire notion of that is so silly that's why the kid was like you know the kid that's you know given his speech he's like you know and then they're talking well maybe it's okay to be homosexual and then you know and this is encouraging people to try it i'm like look <laughs> you know
1: it's not like trying a new flavor of gum.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, you either have the biological capacity or you don't, and as was pointed out, you know, the animals and stuff that are involved yeah. with that, you know, it's it's it happens in, you know, in nature. I've seen it it's myself. Very
1: natural. Yes. You I know, think that's why that's so powerful.
0: You know, and I think that, you know, there's probably, you know, we don't really know what the purpose of it is yet. Um, aside from the fact that I've met, like, I've, like uh, I had one friend of mine who kind of theorized about this, is that some of the greatest artists are gay. You know, maybe there's some kind of, you know, uh, purpose to them within a society that we don't understand yet. You know, but I know that, like, a lot of primitive societies had a much, much more positive outlook about it. Like, um, I was watching a film about Crazy Horse once, and there was an openly gay guy, you know, and apparently the Native Americans, depending on the tribe, were just like, yeah, this happens, big deal. You know mm-hmm. if he wants mm-hmm. to live like a woman, then that's fine, and he'll find another man that wants a man that lives like a woman, and that's how they define it within that's how their they culture it, right, yeah, it's like whatever okay is he contributing to the tribe that's fine, you know if if that's his choice, then fine, you know, I think that uh I think this is another reason why you know this ends up being a hot bitten issue for me. It's just that I dislike it when the church, especially i mean just anybody really, it's like they feel that it's a a threat to their rights if we're allowed to practice what we want that is not the same as what they feel is correct. You know, Mm
2: -hmm. basically
0: breaking it down, like, you know, just like Jefferson said, you know, a man can believe in, you know, 12 gods or, or one that does not pick my pocket. It does not, you know, I'm paraphrasing, you know, it doesn't ruin my life that someone else doesn't hold the same beliefs as I do. And when they think that, Their their ability, you know, that their religion should become the law, you know, we've already seen where theocracy goes, you know, and all the directions that it goes, you know, and anybody who studies about the situation in the American colonies finds out that they fled from theocracy, and when you look at the status of what things were like, all the religions were fighting each other, you know, when we got here. There were Puritans and Catholics and Protestants and you know, that were killing each other over you know, say claiming that your religion's heresy. No, your religion is heresy. It was just a big nightmare. Um and I guess that's basically it for me, is I just I don't like the idea that, that somebody feels that their personal beliefs gives them the right to determine what someone else's rights are.
1: Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Well, the Salem, um,
2: Salem witch trials all over again. Oh,
0: absolutely. No, I, yeah, that's it's funny is um, I at one time was a was a, a practicing pagan. And I actually got asked the following questions in American courtroom. Um, You know, do you uh, drink blood? Do you worship the devil? Do you call, you know, on dark powers? This is things I was asked. I'm not even making this up in an American courtroom because wow. my ex-wife's uh, husband, ex-husband, was trying to deny us visitation rights with the daughter they had together based on our differences in religion. And I looked at the guy, and then I looked at the, the judge, and I said, Your Honor, I believe there is legal precedent that was once utilized on this soil to determine what the prosecution is attempting to determine. So why don't we all go to a body of water, and you can hogtie me and throw me in the lake. And if I sink and drown, well, I, you know, I won't be a witch, but at least you'll know that my soul is with God. you know. But if I float... <laughs> Well, I, you know, if I float, well, then you can burn me at the stake and his church can take all my stuff, you know, or you can stop violating my religious rights and asking me questions that are not in any way relevant to the safety of the child in question. And the judge actually smiled and then chuckled at me. And then the lawyer's head looked like it was going to explode, you know. Now mind you, this is in a really small little town, and I think people tend to forget that this problem still exists. But you know, definitely an attitude about separation of church and state is not an attitude of "you're not allowed to be Christian." It's an attitude of "we're not," you know, "we don't have to be." <laughs> mm-hmm. I, think, I think that was right. the, the drawing the line thing. But in any case, um, you know, thank you very much for being on today. Um, I extended the the show time only just to be sure that. We got everything out because we were all making really good points. Um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit off the air after the broadcast is over, if you have a few minutes. And um,
2: Sure.
0: I want to thank everybody for tuning in today, and I want to thank you, Summer, for being on with me again in our first, like, COVID radio show today.
1: Yes, um, that was great. I uh, feel so happy to be able to be a part of this one. This is really wonderful.
0: Yes, it is. So, Thank you, guys, everybody, for tuning in. Um, before we obviously before I go into my closing statement, uh, Daniel, do you want to give uh, you know the URL to the website so people will know where to learn about your work?
2: Sure. The website for for the Bible tells me so is just the name of the film for the Bible tells me so all one word dot O-R-G, the Bible tells me and the new film is every three seconds written out every three seconds no spaces dot net.
0: And Every Three Seconds is a film about poverty. You know, we talked a little bit about off the air. I'm going to try to feature that in a future episode of V-Radio. So,
1: Yes, really uh, looking forward to that.
0: Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in today, and thank you all who have supported V-Radio. Tomorrow I have a show with uh, Aaron Markerick from uh, Open Source Ecology to give a update on what's going on with Open Source Ecology and their work in creating open source designs for sustainable living for everybody in the world. Uh, that they give away free, open source, so that everybody can have access to the technology to get off the grid and take care of themselves. Um, and in addition to that, obviously, I'm also looking forward to it. I talked to Peter Joseph about being on a show um, on V Radio to talk about his upcoming quote-unquote reality TV show that he's doing. That sounds really interesting. Um, and uh, thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. Please visit my website, v-hyphen or v-minus-radio.org go to the archives and check out more shows like this one. You can also check out my must-see TV list, which is a list of free documentaries that you can watch on the internet to learn more about, you know, different aspects of activism. And if you like what you're hearing, you know, do me a favor. This is a listener-supported show. I am a essentially work-from-home dad and this is what I do. I am an activist on the internet. And if you want the alternative media, you got to support it. So thanks again for everybody for tuning in. Did you have something to say Daniel? I Nope, okay.
2: No, I'm cool. Just thank you for having me.
0: No problem. Thanks again, everybody. And I will leave you guys with some words from Jock Fresco and Roxanne Meadows.
1: This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jock Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.